welcome to everybody uh, to uh, London Seminary this evening. Uh, my name is Bill James. I'm the seminary uh, principal. Uh, it's lovely to see just such a diversity of folks with us uh, this evening, seminary students, former students, folks from churches, board members, um, and I do hope that you will all remain afterwards for a cup of tea and coffee and we can enjoy some, uh, some fellowship uh, together. Uh, this evening we're looking forward to the annual Martin Lloyd-Jones Memorial uh, Lecture. The doctor was, of course, the founder of London Seminary. He was an extraordinary preacher. Uh, he had a massive impact on the church in this country and indeed the cause of the gospel uh, worldwide. Uh, there are some of us who are old enough in this room to have heard the doctor's ministry uh, in person, but even now a new generation is being impacted by his uh, ministry through the books of his sermons, but also through recordings made freely available through the Martin Lloyd-Jones Trust. And I would commend that ministry to you if you've not come across it before. Uh, please, if you've not yet downloaded the Martin Lloyd-Jones app onto your phone, then please do so and enjoy his ministry. They've cleaned up the audio in a wonderful way, and it sounds great, just like uh, the uh, original. I wonder what the doctor would make of that that uh, we are advertising the Lloyd-Jones app. Would he know what we were talking about? And would he approve? Um, so so we, we remember the doctor as a great preacher. Perhaps we can think of any, many other mighty preachers um, over recent centuries. But tonight we're thinking of the greatest preacher of all. Of course, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have these wonderful throwaway comments in the Gospels. They were astonished at his teaching. No man ever spoke like this man. And we wonder what it would have been like to listen to the Lord Jesus Christ as he was preaching and teaching. And so that's the wonderful theme that we're opening up this evening. And uh, it's a great privilege to be able to welcome Dr. Peter Williams as our speaker uh, tonight. Peter is the principal of Tyndale House in Cambridge. And Peter, if you'd like to come up, first of all, let's pray. Uh, gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight with a desire to learn more of the person and the work and the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. We confess that we are only here tonight because of the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work. And indeed, he is the only means of acceptance we have into your presence. He is the only means by which we have to approach to you boldly in prayer as he constantly lives to intercede for us the new and living way into the most holy place. And we rejoice in him. And we do pray, gracious God, that as we come to study the scriptures tonight, not only would we be informed and stimulated as we think about this wonderful theme of the preaching of the Lord Jesus, but also we would be edified and we would be called to reflect upon him in a new and refreshed way. So we pray for your help, your enablement and your blessing. We pray that you would fill Peter with your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would speak through him to us. And we pray that the Lord Jesus Christ would be honoured in all that is done tonight and that ultimately his kingdom would be extended. We pray, gracious God, for your blessing upon the ministry of Tyndale House. We thank you for that extraordinary resource in Cambridge. We thank you for the opportunities and possibilities of extending that ministry they have in the coming days. We pray that you would open new doors and that indeed they might be an even greater blessing to the international church. And we commit all of these uh, concerns and needs to you in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, good evening. It's a particular privilege to be sharing with you uh, tonight uh, for one of the Lloyd-Jones Memorial Lectures. As I was sharing earlier, uh, my parents were very influenced by him. And in fact, growing up in my house, there was no doubt whatsoever that he was the number one spiritual influence on my parents' ha uh, life. And uh, my parents were the number one spiritual influence on my life. So although I didn't uh, uh, have much opportunity to uh, hear the doctor in the flesh, I, I Age six, I did, and I, I can't say it made a huge impression. Um, uh, certainly, I feel indirectly that I have I've benefited very much. It's also lovely to be here uh, in the seminary, uh, which I have long admired from afar. It's a very important work uh, that you're doing here. Now, the topic, the preaching of Jesus, is simply one which is too big. Uh, and uh, we cannot adequately address it. Um, but I hope at least to scratch the surface uh, of a few topics as we do. One of the things that's striking about Jesus' teaching is the frequency with which he calls people to hear. It's actually Jesus' most repeated saying is that the one who has ears to hear should hear that we get in Matthew, Mark and Luke again and again. Why would this be so important? Because so easily we have sounds go past us and we do not hear and we do not heed. And of course, this is the great command to Israel. Hear, um, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus said, talked about hearing as a theme in every gospel. You can see it at the end of his Sermon on the Mount. You can see it in, in Matthew. You can see it in Mark here. Hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person by going into him can defile him. Again in Luke, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. In John, my sheep hear my voice. Many, many examples could be given in each gospel about Jesus talking about hearing. Now, I want us to look at the beginning of the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4 and verse 3. And we're going to look at a couple of Greek words here. One is the word listen, they're in green. Uh, and the other was, is behold. So he begins, listen, behold, the sower went out to sow. So let's look at those words. The first word is listen, and it's the word akuete, uh, and it's related to our word acoustics. The next word is behold, which is idu, which is a distant relative from our word video, which is to do with see. So listen up and then see. Now let's look at the earliest, uh, one of the earliest manuscripts we have of Mark's Gospel, Codex Sinaiticus, in the um, British uh, Library. I want you to look there at the right-hand column, and you can see the word acuete. You may not be able to see it, but that is the word, uh, and it looks pretty much like an A and a K and an O and a Y for a U uh, and E-T-E. I mean, it looks pretty much like the English, doesn't it? Acuete. Okay, that means to listen. But I want you to notice that it ends a paragraph. And then the word behold begins a new paragraph. Back in those days, paragraphs used to go out into the margins, not into the margins. And you know what? One of the reasons that they changed over and our paragraphs go in nowadays is because when printing began, people would uh, print the book, but they'd hand draw in a fancy letter. 
And then when they streamlined that, they just missed out the hand drawing in of the fancy letter, and then you're left with our indented paragraphs. But here we have uh, possibly the earliest manuscript of this text, and notice that it's like this. Jesus says, listen up, pause. Now let the mind's imagination visualize a sower going out to sow. Here is Codex Alexandrinus, also in the British Library. There is the word acuite at the end of a column. And then, what do we have at the beginning of the next column? A nice big capital I. This is what they're doing by the 5th century. The last one was 4th century. And behold. Or you could look at it uh, in this rather um, maverick manuscript we've got in Cambridge, which Theodore Beza gave to the library. And there we have the word listen at the end of a line. And behold, stuck out into the margin, beginning a new paragraph. Codex Vaticanus. The word listen at the end of a line, the word behold at the beginning of a line, you say, but it's not sticking out into the margin. Ah, but there's a little line alongside here, which is called a paragraphos, which is where we get paragraph. You write alongside to mark a new, um, a new paragraph. And that's four of the five earliest manuscripts have that same paragraph break. I believe here what we're dealing with is an authorial paragraph break. Now, I'm not saying that means it's part of the inspired text. I don't think the copyists felt as obliged to copy the paragraphs as they felt to copy the letters and the words. Okay, it's the letters and the words which are given by God. But also, the easiest thing when you're copying something out is not to change the paragraphing. And so what you see is these things survive. And right from the beginning, there's a real emphasis on that word, listen. Here we have it in a Latin manuscript called the Lindisfarne Gospels, 8th century famous Latin manuscript in the British Library. And they've got the word audite, to listen, like audition, there, and a new paragraph beginning with eke, meaning behold. Now, we produced our own edition of the Greek New Testament with Crossway and Cambridge University Press, and we found uh, that it's right, we felt, to present this paragraph. Listen up! And then, behold. But one of the striking things is that when you look at the end of the parable, what does Jesus say? He says, let the one who has ears to hear, hear. Now, you might be able to notice a similarity between the word at the end of the first paragraph and the word at the end of the next paragraph. In other words, as Jesus says this, you have a real emphasis on hearing. Because so easily, humans do not hear what God, um, God has to say. So that's the first thing, the listen up, the need for heeding what uh, Christ had to say. The next thing I want to look at is Jesus' use of questions. Mark chapter 8. Eight questions in a row, marked there in red. I'll just read them. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did I take up? Do you not yet understand? It's not just that you have questions. You have counter-questions. 
In Matthew's Gospel, again and again, we're finding, okay, 90 questions that he asked in Matthew's Gospel, but 10 counter-questions. People say to him, why do we and the Pharisees fast and your disciples do not fast? He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Uh, they say to him, uh, uh, is it lawful, lawful to heal on the uh, Sabbath? And he says, which one of you um, who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Again and again, uh, they say, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? He says, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Uh, they say to him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any um, uh, cause? He begins by saying, well, uh, we've got more than one question here. Have you not read um, that he who created them in the beginning, uh, from the beginning, made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall uh, leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So I suppose that's one big question. Uh, what good deed should I, uh, must I do to have eternal life? Why do you ask me about what's good? Um, do you hear what these are saying? He says, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you prepared uh, praise? Uh, they, they come to him and says, by what authority to do, do you do this? He says, oh, the baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And I'm going through these just so you get, feel the weight of this, how, how often this is going on. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Uh, and then the, whose likeness and inscription is this on the coin? They ask him uh, about in the resurrection. Who, which of the seven husbands is this woman going to belong to, the wife going to be? Um, as for the resurrection of dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? Or uh, they, they ask him, why this waste? Why do you trouble the woman? Now, just looking at some of the th themes we're having here, thrice we have, have you not read? Christ points people to the scriptures. The other thing that we have regularly in these counter-questions is a why do you? Why do you break the commandment of God? Why do you ask me about what's good? Why do you put me to the test? Why do you trouble the woman? Why do you? So there are two things here. Pointing people to the word of God. Pointing people to the scriptures. Two, asking them to reflect on their own behaviour, their own motives, and particularly the challenge of consistency. We see this in politics all the time. You know, party one will uh, say yabu to party two for a particular form of behaviour until the roles are reversed and then they're suddenly quiet about it. And it's all this sort of... Now, it's the inconsistency there which most points out our moral void. <laughs> and we, we see it all the time. And, and Jesus absolutely cuts to the chase on this. The whole question of the inconsistency of behaviour, and this is a key thing as we think about preaching and as applying the word of God, is the whole question of why do you, looking at what people already do, people already acting on a set of values, and we should press home on that. So, point one, the call to hear. Point two, the use of the question. Point three, Good teachers repeat. Now, there's an awful lot of wrong stuff that goes on in academic study of the scriptures. And one of the things that can be quite wrong-headed is the way that scholars of the Gospels align the Gospels together. And they say that this saying in one Gospel is a variation on that saying in 
the other gospel, and one of the gospel writers has changed it for their own agenda. Okay, that's the sort of way they like to do it. One of the things I want you to notice is if we just take the four gospels on their own, each one individually, they all contain an assertion. And this is the assertion. Jesus repeated himself. Look at Matthew. The saying about divorce is there in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. Whoever divorces his wife, except for adultery. So so as you're reading through Matthew's gospel, Matthew is telling you Jesus said this thing more than once. Or the saying about your eye offending it. Uh, You pluck it out, cast it away from you. That's in Matthew 5 and Matthew 18. If your hand offend you, in Matthew 5, and Matthew 18. The bit about good trees bearing good fruit and bad trees bearing bad fruit and from the um, uh, fruit you know them is in Matthew 7 and Matthew 12. Matthew is telling you that Jesus said this on more than one occasion. Yes, there are variations because when we uh, 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 preach our sermons, they don't come out uh, identically every time. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, he says in chapter 9 and chapter 12. Or when he says to his disciples, they'll be hated for his sake. Chapter 10 and chapter 24. Um, When he talks about the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Chapter 10 and chapter 15. When he says a wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign. Chapter 12 and chapter 16. By the way, you you know, if anyone wants these PowerPoint slides, um, I'm happy for them to be circulated uh, to to, uh, people on the seminary list afterwards for personal use. So hopefully, you know, if you want to pick up on some of this data, uh, then, then, well, it's all there in the gospel text. Anyway. Um, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Uh, so on. Is there chapter 16 and chapter 18? Or saying to this mountain, then a command to move, and the movement happens there in chapter 17 and 21. First being last and the last being first. Variations chapter 19 and 20. Um, the greatest among you being your servant. Chapter 20 and 23. They will deceive many twice in chapter 24. And Weeping and gnashing and teeth, we have a total of six times there in Matthew's Gospel. And then a bit about the sun uh, watching for the Son of Man uh, coming there in chapter 24 and 25. And we keep going, get behind me, Satan, chapter 4 and chapter 16, once to Satan, once to uh, Peter. Everyone who has more, uh, um, it will be given and he'll have an abundance, chapter 13, chapter 15. The one who has ears to hear, let him hear, we got that three times. And the passion predictions three times. Now that's not just that's not just Matthew. You see the same happens in Mark. Again, we don't have to go through every single one of these. Mark doesn't have as many examples of uh, the Lord's teaching. So you've got chapter four as a, a particular group, chapter seven about clean and unclean. You've, you've got the part in chapter thirteen. There isn't as much text that in a red letter Bible uh, would uh, have 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 that. Uh, we don't need to go there on red letter bibles um they they can have their purpose um but uh even there we see repetition in mark going again into luke's gospel your faith has saved you four times show yourself to the priest twice no one likes a lamp in particular sayings eight uh, chapter eight and verse uh, and chapter 11 people loving the first seats twice uh don't worry what you'll say Twice. The one who has ears to hear, let him hear. Twice. Everyone who has, more will be given. Twice. And the passion predictions, thrice. John's Gospel, lots here. Truly, truly, I say to you, verily, verily, I say to you, 25 times. I'm going to the Father, 
at least six times. Um, I am the bread of life. It's interesting with the I am sayings. Often the I am sayings are repeated in the same passage. Uh, so I am the bread of life you have twice. I am the light of the world twice. I am the door twice. I am the good shepherd twice. I am the true vine plus I am the vine. Now, the problem with the way academics sometimes study the Bible is if you had I am the true vine in one gospel and I am the vine in the other, they say, aha, look, someone's added the word true because they wanted to emphasize something or whatever. And this is a great problem because good teachers repeat. Why do they repeat? Because people forget. And Jesus is often saying the same thing again and again. And this is important also for apologetic purposes, for us to understand why there are differences between the Gospels. Because Jesus can preach the same sermon on many different occasions. <laughs> haven't, haven't many of us done that? Yes, it's the same sermon, but it's not quite the same sermon. But we do that all the time, and that's normal. And yet there comes this problem when people start comparing and saying, this bit here in this gospel was said on this occasion, and this bit here seems to align with it in this gospel, but it was said on a different occasion. So some nasty person changed the occasion. No, they didn't. Jesus repeated himself. Do you think he only said the Beatitudes once? When you come up with something so brilliant, only said it once, really? But there we are. I am the resurrection and life. I am the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. He's saying he's the life more than once, isn't he? So the calls to repeat the points, uh, pointing people to the scriptures, pointing out their moral inconsistency and repetition. Now, let's go on to what I will call the lesson on the mount, um, with apologies to the doctor. Um, Augustine called it the sermo on the mount, um, for which we might render sermon. But it would only be about 12 minutes long, wouldn't it, as a sermon? And it says he went up the mountain and he taught them. And so I imagine, and perhaps I'm wrong on this, that he got them to learn the Beatitudes. People often wonder, how did people memorize this stuff? Because he taught it for them to memorize. He taught them all day, repeat after me, disciples, have you learnt your Beatitudes yet? So it's not actually that, you know, someone's at the back of the audience listening and thinking, you know, blessed are the peacemakers and hearing something else. Um, no, rather, he teaches them up the mountain. But I want us to address this subject of what language did Jesus speak? Now, obviously, we have in Mark's gospel that he's talking to a 12-year-old girl and says, Talitha kum, uh, or to a deaf-mute uh, man, and says, Ephatha, praying to his father, he says, Abba, and on the cross, he speaks Aramaic. All of those are cases are speaking Aramaic, but of course, on the cross, he is uh, misunderstood by some when he does so. So we can take it that addressing individuals or speaking his heart language, uh, he was using Aramaic. And in the age of discovery in the 16th century, there was a lot of emphasis on we've rediscovered the manuscripts that give you the real words of Jesus, not those words you've got in your Greek Gospels, the real ones in Aramaic. C along comes the Romantic movement. And I'd love some people really to dig down on the history here because it's lovely for the Romantic movement to think of Jesus as some rustic peasant who's part of uh, an Aramaic-speaking sphere that hasn't been corrupted by all of that nasty Greek education, Plato, Aristotle, and the rest. Just the pure spirit of humanity, uncorrupted by that stuff. 
And so it's very convenient for them to emphasize Jesus as someone who only speaks Aramaic. Notice the shift from he spoke Aramaic to he only spoke Aramaic. That's a very big shift. Now, when we notice um, uh, some skeptics today, what they're trying to do is they're saying, he spoke this language, your Gospels are in another language. Think of the chasm that there is between that and what you have in your scriptures. And uh, some people stumble at that. Well, I would suggest to you there are a number of reasons to think that Jesus actually taught sometimes in Greek. Well, we have Greek Gospels. And of course, when uh, the family fled down to Egypt, that would have been a language that they would have uh, been using however long they were there. As an itinerant preacher, you speak the languages that people need to speak, and there's plenty of evidence that people spoke different languages. Two of the disciples, of course, have Greek names, Andrew and Philip, and some of the people that Jesus comes across have some pretty Greek names, names Nicodemus, uh, Victorian people. I like Bartimaeus. Um, Bar is the word for son of in Aramaic. Timaeus is the name of a dialogue by Plato. So maybe his grandparents liked Plato, and so they called their son Timaeus, and then the next one becomes Bartimaeus, and it shows you the sort of mix that's going on. Even the um, great meeting of the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, has a Greek name. But also Jesus sometimes uses some very distinctively Greek words. The word hypocrite, which means actor. Now think about this. Greeks had theatre, and the, the actors would put a mask on. The Romans imitated that theatre, Hebrews didn't have theatre, and the Aramaic sphere didn't have theatre. And Jesus grew up in Nazareth, which is less than four miles from a theatre. So when he keeps on using this word hypocrite, it's a very clear Greek word, but also it's not something you can have a word in Aramaic or Hebrew for because they don't have theatre. Or if they had a word, they would use the word from the other language. Thrice he talks about Hades, the gates of Hades won't prevail um, against it. Or, or the rich man there in uh, Luke chapter uh, 16. Or the paraclete. These are very distinctively Greek words. In fact, there's one point in John's Gospel where his opponents are wondering, is he going to go to the Greek diaspora and teach the Greeks? Well, they wouldn't do that if he couldn't speak a word of it. But notice the entrance to the, ser the Sermon or Lesson on the Mount. Who's there? It says people from all sorts of areas round about Syria, Galilee, and uh, Judea, Jerusalem, and the Decapolis. The Decapolis, the ten Greek cities. Now, there's no point striking up in Galilean Aramaic or something like that. You see, I did grow up in Yorkshire. You can't do that. We've well, got people in the Decapolis there. The way you have a default with languages is that um, you know, people have to default to the language sometimes of power. And, and the, the, the Greeks had, had the upper hand. That was the uh, Greek speakers. That was the language of the Eastern Roman Empire. So if Jesus is going to address them, he may have taught them in both languages. In fact, I think I've got some evidence for that uh, from this very lesson. Uh, because the one who calls someone raka, the Aramaic word for fool, uh, is um, judged with the Sanhedrin, the Greek word. The one who uses the Greek word for fool, uh, moros, uh, is condemned to Gehenna, which is an Aramaic word. Now, I think we're meant to take those crossing over uh, 
sayings together. It's not that one word gets you, you know, this much punishment and the other word gets you that much punishment, but it's rather that Jesus is engaging his entire audience. Um, so he opens his mouth at the beginning of Ma- uh, Matthew chapter 5 and he taught them saying. Now I want you to notice that the first four Beatitudes all begin with the letter pi. After the first two Greek words there, the third word begins with the letter P. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who um, mourn. Blessed are the meek, meek. Blessed are those who hunger. All of those begin with the letter P. The first one, poor in spirit. Poor is with a P and spirit is with a P. The ones who mourn will be comforted. Both of those have the letter P in. But then you find that there are those who thirst for righteousness. And the word thirst begins D-I, and righteousness begins D-I. Or pure in heart. Well, I've got a wife. My wife is called Catherine. Pure. Great. K-A. And heart. The cardiologist looks after your heart. K-A. Pure in heart. It's alliteration here. Those who are persecuted for righteousness. And the word persecute begins with a D. And in fact, the root of it begins a D-I and righteousness begins D-I. So you see there's alliteration here. And as we go on, we find that, of course, those who are merciful obtain mercy. And blessed are the peacemakers. That's in blue in verse 9. Uh, the ending there, that peacemakers become sons of God, are actually identical sounds in Greek. I won't go into the technicalities of that. Then we have the fact that for they, or for theirs, joins those sayings with the same structure right the way throughout. And if I were to turn this into Hebrew or Aramaic, I would not get this sort of alliteration. Uh, the, fray, the red here marks the verb endings, the same five letters ending five of those lines. Even the dark blue, the S's of plurals are gathered together, and the grey, the O-I of plurals, gathered together. Now the point is, this makes it super memorable. It allows you, by the way, as a preacher, to have some justification if you use alliteration. Uh, I'm not saying you should overdo it, um, but it makes it very memorable. Now some people, you know, sceptical scholars might say, well, couldn't this be the creation of the evangelist? It has to be incredibly creative to do this. You have have to make the the evangelist into the creative genius. It doesn't really make sense. It makes far more sense to say, this is the way Jesus taught, and we have his exact words. Look at that word hypocrite again and again uh, in uh, this sermon. Another way we could uh, justify this is, remember he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Greek has a word for yes. Aramaic doesn't. Hebrew doesn't. Some words get, some languages get by without a word for yes. It only makes sense as a Greek saying. And there it is. It's in James. It's in 2 Corinthians. Or look at this one. Beware, pro, of false prophets, because they come to you in the clothing of sheep, pro. They all begin like that. And there are so many examples I could give you in this set of teaching. So you have these options. Either Matthew has been incredibly creative, you know, he he inherited something in some other language from Jesus, and then he made it all into, uh, you know, stuff with alliteration. Sorry, I don't want to go there. I think what we have here is Jesus' teaching. I think uh, we can demonstrate that Jesus actually invented, is likely to have invented two words 
in Greek, and all sorts of other things, and used at least eight Latin words. Now, it's not just in Matthew, it's in Mark. I will make you fishers of men. Alpha, alpha, fishers of men. Uh, oh, it's, and uh, the well don't need a doctor. And the two words come next to each other in the sentence. The word well and doctor both begin with an iota. Or uh, the sons of the bride chamber, uh, can they fast? Well, they begin with an N. Looks like a V. <laughs> uh, can they fast? Begins with an N. Uh, while the bridegroom's with them. They're all wens, you see. What about this one? Whichever measure you use will be measured back to you. Three times in a row we get M-E-T-R, like our word meter, for measure. Now, turn that into any language and those three words will not be adjacent to each other. They're not adjacent in English. With the measure you measure, so I've already got the U between the measure and the measure, it will be measured to you. They're not all next to each other in English. But they're next to each other in the Greek. And this is a feature you can find uh, throughout the Gospels. Look at this saying. The Son of Man is going to be rejected with an alpha. He will be killed with an alpha. And he will rise again with an alpha. And all of them have the same four letters at the end of those verbs as well. If anyone would follow me, alpha, let him deny himself, alpha, take up his cross, alpha, and follow me, alpha. What does it profit a man, kappa, if he gains the whole world, kappa? What shall a man, alpha, give as an exchange, alpha, for his soul? So what I want to say is, I believe Jesus could teach in Greek, and this is important because you see some of his teaching method. He taught memorably. He wanted people to learn what he was saying, and there's also no need to think of a big gap between his words and what we have in the Gospels. And if you want to read more about this, it's a bit of a commercial plug in the middle of a a lecture still, and there's some to go. Subscribe to our magazine. We are happy to send this free to your home address or to send multiple copies to your church. And uh, in issue number seven, I can uh, of that, and it's also free online. Just go to innerhouse.com forward slash magazine uh, and you can get that. I want to look at Jesus' longest parable, uh, known as the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the two sons. And we're going to look at that in a bit more detail. It's 388 words long. It's less than three minutes of text, and it is utterly astounding. It is the most amazing short story ever told. Let's think about his audience according to uh, Luke chapter two, uh, 15. And we have two groups of two uh, people. We have the tax collectors and sinners all drawing near to hear him. They are hearing. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbling like Israel in the Old Testament. This man receives sinners and eats with them. So tax collectors and sinners and scribes and Pharisees. Tax collectors and sinners, you wouldn't expect to know the scriptures particularly well. Pharisees and scribes certainly would. The scribes' job is copying out the scriptures. And in fact, counting the very letters of, of, of scriptures and distinguishing similar phrases. Then Jesus tells three stories. One of a sheep lost. One out of a hundred sheep, in fact, lost by going away. It's framed all as a question. Um, then we have one out of ten coins, lost not by going away, but lost at home. So one's lost going away and one's lost at home. One of ten, framed as a question. Then we have two sons. One lost by going away and the other at home, implicitly lost. So Jesus, if you like, uses these two brilliant parables of the sheep and the coin as the warm-up act for this longer parable. Um, uh, which is not framed as a question. 
Now, what he, he begins, he says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Point often ignored. He actually did what wasn't even asked for. That is, both of them get the inheritance straight away. So the older brother should be so pleased with his younger brother. His younger brother has done all the dirty work for him, and he has just landed inheritance. And if this takes place in Israel, and older brother gets double, whoa, little brother, you're the best ever. I'm so pleased with you that you went to dad and made yourself unpopular asking that question. I do really well. I am lifelong indebted to you. If you ever need anything from me, little brother, you can count on me. I'm so pleased with you. But that's not quite how the story goes, is it? Um, <laughs> now, from that legal side, we see the younger brother may well get a share of the movable property, but clearly the other son owns the farm. He does incredibly well. Now, the younger son then goes away and wastes his property, just as in the very next story, beginning of Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a story about a waster. So there are two stories adjacent about wasters. That's a, the a steward who's wasting uh, possessions. And that's a really striking thing, because if you're a Pharisee, you hate people wasting uh, money. That's very bad. And then what we see is, the as the story goes, it goes so well as far as the Pharisee's concerned. Because that younger brother, who's so bad, and that he asked his his father for the inheritance, he ends up feeding pigs. That is justice. That is great. Every Pharisee at this point is on the side. This story is going so well. This lad is getting just what he deserves. The lowest possible job, feeding unclean animals, justice is being served. And you see the brilliance of telling this story and getting them uh, on side. Um, and it's interesting that uh, just when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. One of the things that's been shown is actually how when people retell this story, they often omit the famine. So was, uh, I think it was a study between a Russian group being taught this parable and an American group being taught this parable and, the and then being asked to write it down. And more of the Russian group, this a while ago, uh, had actually remembered the famine. Maybe they were actually Ukrainian, but that, uh, it, was, it was taught in Moscow, I think. Um, but they, they remembered famine. <laughs> that was a big thing. But it's a big thing in this story as well. Why is the son in such a bad situation? Well, because of his own stupid decisions. And also because, and it'll excuse the term amongst Calvinists, he was unlucky. You know? Um, because he just happened to choose the one country where there was a famine. That's bad luck, isn't it? So he, uh, he made stupid decisions. But as far as his, the older brother is concerned, it was all his fault. So then we see the brilliance of Jesus' story as little details exacerbate the effect when he says that he went and joined himself to one of the citizens of that country. Doesn't that word really rub in the fact that he's not a citizen? Every little detail of this story is crafted very carefully uh, for maximum effect. And I think um, this gives us a lot of impetus to think very carefully about the precise words that we use. The phrase that they began to celebrate when he came back. Again, it emphasizes to you the length of the celebration. Um, 
Uh, now, you're told that the older brother was out in the field. What was he doing in the field? It doesn't tell you, but you know what to imagine. That he was working late. And he's working when other people are already at the celebration. So Jesus knows how to convey a lot of information without using lots of words. Then we have the older brother. The first word he says to his father, look, all these years. And what's brilliant about that is the missing word. Because every time the younger brother has addressed his father, he's called him father. Father, give me my share of the inheritance. Even when he's rehearsing the speech in his mind, he calls him father. When he actually gets back and talks to his father, he calls him father. Three times he calls him father. And that's the missing word. This older brother says, look, and he doesn't see his father as his father. And then he complains that his father never gave him a young goat so that he would celebrate with his friends. Poor boy. Has his older brother always been uh, forced to be a vegetarian on the farm? He never even got a young goat so that he could celebrate with his friends. But notice what we have in this sentence. is We have implicitly who he wants on the guest list, namely his friends, and who he doesn't want on the guest list, namely his brother, and more importantly, his father. He could have friends around at the farm any time. But somehow, when he's with his father, it doesn't taste the same. So you see the brilliance of the way Jesus tells the story. And then the missing ending. Because the father goes out and pleads with the older brother. And you're not told how the older brother responds. But we know how the father would respond if the older brother came back. How do we know that? Because the woman rejoiced when she found the coin at home. Therefore, we can fill in, like Sudoku, the missing ending of the story. We know that if that older brother responded, there would be a celebration. So you see the brilliance of Jesus' story. But I want to show you some more brilliance. And this is where he stretches the scribes. You see, he has Bible experts in the audience. And the brilliance of Jesus is to be able to tell you a simple story that will work with a child that doesn't require any background knowledge at all to understand, that will work from culture to culture, and it'd be very powerful, and at the same time to challenge the people who are the top Bible scholars in the audience. And to be able to teach two groups simultaneously, that is utter brilliance. And that is what he does. Let's have a look at this. The scribes know the scriptures, and one of the books they most copy out, they most copy out the first five books of the Bible, but particularly the book of Genesis. There was a man who had two sons. That's how the story begins. Who's the most famous man in the Bible to have two and only two sons? Well, that would be Isaac, wouldn't it? And remember that the younger one goes off into a far country after cheating the older one out of his inheritance. So the older one has reason to be absolutely mad. He's lost his inheritance. By the way, in Jesus' parable, this older son has completely got his inheritance and it landed the jackpot. Okay? Uh, so the older brother is then angry. Esau is angry. Contrast Jesus' parable where the younger brother goes off into a far country with everything and comes back with nothing, Jacob goes off with nothing and comes back with an awful lot. But there's a bit more here, because we find that as they grew up, Esau was a man of the field, and then we find that he went out hunting, he got hungry, and he said, I'm about to die. That's the phrase that the younger brother used in Jesus' parable. 
here I am dying of hunger. I've got to eat. And so Jesus uses elements from Genesis in a brilliant way. But the most striking bit, dramatically in the entire story, is when the father runs, embraces and kisses the younger son, isn't it? And that's the bit you would make the film about. Uh, uh, Luke chapter 15, verse 20. But there's only one place in the entire Bible where someone runs, embraces and kisses someone. And the scribes know that. It's when Esau runs, embraces and kisses his younger brother. And that is one of the most surprising reactions in the entire Bible. I mean, Jacob was absolutely petrified of what his older brother was going to do with those 400 men. And then we find he embraces him, even though he had cheated his older brother. And Esau's a bad one in the Old Testament, right? He forgave his brother. And that's so striking because that's what uh, Jesus picks up. Now, one of the things that scribes did is they copied things out carefully. And part of the scribal training was that you had to pick up particular scribal conventions. There are 10 times in the Pentateuch, the first five books, where you had to put special dots over letters, five of them in the book of Genesis. This is a thing that we know goes back to the second century after Christ, and that by that stage they'd already forgotten its origins, right? So I think there's good reason to think it goes back to the time of Christ. And one of those precise points of scribal training was this verse. So the dramatic climax of Jesus's story coincides with one of the best known parts of any scribal training, where on the word and he kissed in Genesis, the scribes had to put dots. You can see it there on the right in a British library manuscript and on the left in the oldest complete manuscript of the Old Testament. Uh, I've, there are just dots above that word and he kissed uh, there. And this is just an astounding thing. To make a coherent story out of these sort of things, at the same time as uh, it's it, totally coherent, but it, it, it picks up on the point that your scribal audience knew about. Now, some people say, okay, but Jesus didn't do that. It was the clever writer of Luke. No, it wasn't. Because the only reason to put this sort of detail in is because your audience can spot it. There's no point Luke writing for Gentiles, putting the stuff in because the Gentiles aren't going to notice it. The only point is for Jesus to say it to the scribes. Think about that person whose verse you copy out, Esau forgave his brother. There are lots of softer connections, man with two sons, coming in from field, dying of hunger, cheating out of the inheritance, young goats, oh, that's, that's great. I mean, the only time in the Bible that someone actually has goats as a meal uh, is, of course, uh, Esau, uh, um, Jacob giving them to um, Isaac, who cannot see a long way away, can he? Um, and uh, notice, by the way, how um, the younger son in Jesus' story gets the best robe. Well, whose is the best robe belong to? Well, we're already told that Jacob has got in Esau's very robes. And the use of the word draw near is absolutely fascinating as well and so far. But there we are. Esau also was staying at home till his father died. He wanted uh, that, but later forgave his brother. But there's a bit more to it. It's the Laban story as well. Lots of the details of the Laban story come up in a seven-verse cluster in Luke, just the second half of that parable, where the music and dancing, the older brother's talking about, of course, that's how Laban said he wanted to send off uh, his daughters. Uh, the older brother gets angry. Well, of course, Jacob got angry. 
But perhaps most striking is this. The older brother saying, all these years I've served you. Isn't that what Jacob said? I've had to work 20 years for you. Um, and uh, both of them are talking about a father figure relative that they've had to work for. Okay? Uh, then we find, but when this son of yours come came, uh, you know, who's devoured your property, devoured your money, devour is exactly the word, eat up is the word used by Rachel and Leah about what their father has done. And whereas the father says, all that is, uh, is mine is yours, um, Laban says, all you see is mine. Well, it's a bit more than that, though, isn't it? It's the story of jo- Joseph. You see, the ring and the robe that are given to um, the younger brother in Jesus' story, there's only one time that someone's given a ring and a robe uh, in uh, the Bible, and that's Joseph. Um, and both of those happened at times of great famine, and they're the only two instant rags-to-riches stories in the Bible that are permanent. Okay, Mordecai gets you know, suddenly dressed up uh, quickly, but, but it's actually permanent. These are the only two. No one gives the prodigal any food. Joseph gave food to everyone. Joseph went into a far country. He was thought dead. He's the only other son in the Bible that the father thought was dead and then alive again. And so Jesus uses this story in an amazing way. And Joseph forgave his brothers. Then there's that story in Genesis 38. You know, there's only one other place in the Bible where friend, goat, and prostitute come together. Only one other place, you know it. It, it, It's Genesis 38, and it's in a two-verse cluster. Remember that (laughs) when Joseph was off in a far country sexually behaving, his brother Judah was in the native country not sexually behaving. How does the younger brother know that his younger brother's with prostitutes? Has he been sending postcards? There's only one source of information. He hasn't even met him since he's come back from the field. It's his imagination. That's the only source. And why is he imagining that? Because that's where he wants to be himself. So, but there's more. There's Abraham. Have you thought about Abraham? Now, come on. A man had two sons. Okay, Abraham had more than two sons. But to begin with, he had two sons. Very striking. And he is the archetypal father figure. Mentioned... uh, as father three times in Luke 16. So Luke 15, father is mentioned three times. Luke 16, father three times. As, um, remember how uh, the rich man, temporarily rich man, because he's not rich when he's in Hades, uh, is calling out Father Abraham. Mate, if, if, if Abraham is your father, then Lazarus has to be your brother. You've got more than five brothers. Just think about that. Uh, you know, that mathematical mistake that the rich man makes. So, But the striking thing is, what's the first word out of the father's mouth in Luke 15, verse 22? It's the word quick. No time to waste. Well, who's the first person to say quick in the Bible? Well, that would be Abraham in Genesis 18, when these three guests come along. And he says, quick, let's get ready. It's a quick leading to hospitality. In fact, it's not just a quick leading to hospitality. It's a quick leading to three seers of fine flour and then a calf, the killing of the calf. Now, think about this. It's a very, very... Striking thing. All these first occurrences in the Bible. Who's the first man to run in the Bible? Um, Abraham. Who's the first person to offer hospitality in the Bible? Abraham. Um, Melchizedek's serving people, but actually hospitality? Abraham. Who's the first one to say quick in the Bible? Abraham. First person to get a fatted calf? Abraham. And then think about this. He's the only other old guy in the Bible who runs. He's 99 when he runs to meet the guests. 
Okay, quite a striking thing. Every scribe would notice that. His quick begins a speech. It leads to a fatted calf. And we know that Jesus taught about three seers because Jesus' longest parable is the story of the two sons. Jesus' shortest parable is about a woman who took leaven and put it in three seers of flour. And that's the only time in the Bible we get three seers. So Jesus was specifically thinking about that verse in Genesis 18. This one. Genesis 18, verse 6. Quick, three seers of fine flour. And this is the brilliance. One word goes into the longest parable. The other phrase goes into the shortest parable. And you know they come from Jesus. There's no way that gospel writers can come up with these sort of patterns. But you see, Abraham... His two sons didn't inherit equally. The younger son inherited everything. Why? Well, <laughs> Abraham was the only other father in the Bible who gave away his inheritance while he's still alive. Remember that? How it says that Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son, Isaac, eastward towards the east country. Oh, yes. When you think of someone giving away his inheritance while he's still alive, you think of Abraham. But it's not just that. The older brother wouldn't celebrate for the younger brother, would he? He refused to go in. Who despised a celebration for a younger brother? Oh, that would be Ishmael, wouldn't it? Who, when his younger brother was weaned, there was a feast in his honour, and he mocked, and that's when he lost his inheritance. That's when Sarah said, he's not going to inherit, and God agreed. In other words, if you're, mock, if you're mocking and despising the feast for the younger brother, you're at risk of losing your inheritance. So think about this. Abraham didn't allow Isaac to go to a far country. Abraham said to his servants, see that you don't take my son back there. One more story, the story of Cain and Abel. A man had two sons. Try Adam for a bit. <laughs> the Bible's first brothers, the first family conflict. The older brother associated with the field, the younger with the care of animals. The older brother getting very angry when Abel was accepted by God. The Bible's first recorded anger is envy of a younger brother. And God the father figure engages graciously with the angry older brother. Isn't it amazing that Jesus took all of Genesis's greatest hits and put them into one three-minute story so that although there are weak references, and you can say some of mine are reading in too much, you actually get strong references every 20 seconds in the story. It's an amazing thing to be able to do a story that good. So if there's one thing to go away from tonight, it's just a sense of wow. Right? Wow at the teaching of Jesus. Not, I can go away and do that. No, you can't. Don't worry. What we can do is we can go away and be inspired to look at his words more closely. Realizing that this is the best ever teacher to walk the planet. <laughs> and that's why we need to heed his word. And you know, I think a lot of those Pharisees and scribes probably went away from his stories unimpressed. They might not have noticed these references. And they might have thought, what's this guy on about? But come judgment day, they'll see what was there if they had ears to hear. There are many clear connections. I think Joseph and the robes and the rings, the running, embracing, kissing, all these years I've worked for you, quick and the fatted calf, but dozens of others throughout Genesis. It's amazing. And it's not just that there are clever references. These references all make a point. 
that people had a lot of reason for anger and forgave. Esau lost his inheritance and forgave. Laban lost all his property and had to um, declare peace uh, with Jacob because God said he had to. Joseph, whose brothers had sold him, forgave them. Ishmael lost everything when he wouldn't celebrate his younger brother. So there are lessons for the scribes. Each of them has a lesson. Moral lessons. Jesus isn't just teaching with even Abraham's welcome is a moral lesson. And many more. So what can we conclude? Well, it's a unified, simple story composed by someone who knows the Old Testament very well. And this is the brilliance of Jesus. He's a genius, in fact. But the right thing to do with that level of cleverness is to simplify things. Jesus spoke simply, and the simple people heard him gladly. And he said to the Pharisees, you take away the key of knowledge. An awful lot of what goes on is overcomplicating things and actually excluding people from knowledge. And that's what the Pharisees were good at doing, a lot of academics are good at doing, is actually trying to stop people getting knowledge, creating barriers to that knowledge. And one of the things you should be doing as you're teaching and preaching is breaking down those barriers. Um, and so uh, really learning from Jesus just how to simplify things. It also means that just as I'd argue that this, the Sermon or Lesson on the Mount was handed down with integrity, we have those exact words of the Beatitudes. Also, we have the exact words of Jesus' parable. Because you can't make a unified, brilliant story in which everything counts unless by committee. It doesn't happen. You can't evolve it over time. It all has to go back to the original genius. It has to go back to Jesus himself. Why can he teach like this? Well, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made through him. And it's because Jesus is the Word of God that he is the best teacher and the one whom we should hear and heed 